0: Book Nine, Part One of History of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth Translated by Aaron Thompson and J.A. Giles This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One Arthur succeeds Uther, his father, in the Kingdom of Britain and besieges Colgrin. Uther Pendragon being dead... The nobility from several provinces assembled together at Silcester, and proposed to Dubricius, Archbishop of Legions, that he should consecrate Arthur, Uther's son, to be their king. For they were now in great straits, because, upon hearing of the king's death, the Saxons had invited over their countrymen from Germany, and, under the command of Colgrin, were attempting to exterminate the whole British race. They had also entirely subdued all that part of the island, which extends from the Humber to the Sea of Caithness. Dubricius, therefore, grieving for the calamities of his country, in conjunction with the other bishops, set the crown upon Arthur's head. Arthur was then fifteen years old, but a youth of such unparalleled courage and generosity, joined with that sweetness of temper and innate goodness, as gained him universal love. When his coronation was over, he, according to usual custom, showed his bounty and munificence to the people and such a number of soldiers flocked to him upon it, that his treasury was not able to answer that vast expense. But such a spirit of generosity, joined with valour, can never long want means to support itself. Arthur, therefore, the better to keep up his munificence, resolved to make use of his courage, and fall upon the Saxons, that he might enrich his followers with their wealth. To this he was also moved by the justice of the cause, since the entire monarchy of Britain belonged to him by hereditary right. Hereupon, assembling the youth under his command, he marched to York, of which, when Colgrin had intelligence, he met him with a very great army, composed of Saxons, Scots, and Picts, by the River Douglas, where a battle happened, with the loss of the greater part of both armies. Notwithstanding, the victory fell to Arthur, who pursued Colgrin to York, and there besieged him. Upon the news of his brother's flight, went towards the siege with a body of six thousand men to his relief. For at the time of the battle, he was upon the sea coast, waiting the arrival of Duke Cheldric with succors from Germany, and being now no more than ten miles distant from the city, his purpose was to make a speedy march in the night time and fall upon the enemy by way of surprise. But Arthur having intelligence of his design, sent a detachment of 600 horse and 3,000 foot under the command of Cador, Duke of Cornwall, to meet him the same night. Cador, therefore, falling into the same road along which the enemy was passing, made a sudden assault upon them, and entirely defeated the Saxons, and put them to flight. Badulf was excessively grieved at this disappointment in the relief which he intended for his brother, and began to think of some other stratagem to gain access to him, in which... If he could but succeed, he thought they might concert measures together for their safety. And since he had no other way for it, he shaved his head and beard, and put on the habit of a jester with a harp, and in this disguise walked up and down the camp, playing upon his instrument as if he had been a harper. He thus passed unsuspected, and by a little and little went up to the walls of the city, where he was at last discovered by the besieged, who thereupon drew him up with cords, and conducted him to his brother. At this unexpected, though much-desired meeting, they spent some time in joyfully embracing each other, and then began to consider various stratagems for their delivery. At last, just as they were considering their case desperate, the ambassadors returned from Germany, and brought with them, to Albania, a fleet of six hundred sail, laden with brave soldiers, under the command of Childeric. Upon this news, Arthur was dissuaded by his council from continuing the siege any longer, for fear of hazarding a battle with so powerful and numerous an enemy. Chapter 2 Hurl sent 15,000 men to Arthur's assistance. Arthur complied with their advice, and made his retreat to London, where he called an assembly of all the clergy and nobility of the kingdom to ask their advice what course to take against the formidable power of the pagans. After some deliberation, it was agreed that ambassadors should be dispatched into Armorica to King Hurl, to represent to him the calamitous state of Britain. Hurl was the son of Arthur's sister by Dubricius, king of the Amorican Britons, so that, upon advice of the disturbances his uncle was threatened with, he ordered his fleet to be got ready, and having assembled 15,000 men, he arrived with the first fair wind at Hamos Port, and was received with all suitable honour by Arthur, and most affectionately embraced by him. Chapter 3 Arthur makes the Saxons his tributaries. After a few days, they went to relieve the city Carliadcoit, that was besieged by the pagans, which, being situated upon a mountain between two rivers in the province of Lindisia, is called by another name, Lindocollinium. As soon as they arrived there with all their forces, they fought with the Saxons, and made a grievous slaughter of them to the number of six thousand, part of whom were drowned in the rivers, part fell by the hands of the Britons. The rest, in a great consternation, quitted the siege and fled, but were closely pursued by Arthur, till they came to the wood of Caledon, where they endeavoured to form themselves into a body again and make a stand. And here they again joined battle with the Britons, and made a brave defence whilst the trees that were in the place secured them against the enemy's arrows. Arthur, seeing this, commanded that the trees that were in that part of the wood to be cut down and the trunks to be placed quite round them so as to hinder their getting out, resolving to keep them pent up here till he could reduce them by famine. He then commanded his troops to besiege the wood, and continued three days in that place. The Saxons, having now no provisions to sustain them, and being just ready to starve with hunger, begged for leave to go out. In consideration whereof, they offered to leave all their gold and silver behind them, and return back to Germany with nothing but their empty ships. They promised also that they would pay him tribute from Germany and leave hostages with him. Arthur, after consultation about it, granted their petition, allowing them only leave to depart and retaining all their treasures as also hostages for payment of the tribute. But as they were under sail on their return home, they repented of their bargain and tacked about again towards Britain and went on shore at Totnes. No sooner were they landed than they made an utter devastation of the country, as far as the Severn Sea, and put all the peasants to the sword. From thence, they pursued their furious march to the town of Bath, and laid siege to it. When the King had intelligence of it, he was beyond measure surprised at their proceedings, and immediately gave orders for the execution of the hostages, and desisting from an attempt which he had entered upon to reduce the Scots and Picts, he marched with the utmost expedition to raise the siege, but laboured under very great difficulties because he had left his nephew, Earl sick at, at length, having entered the province of Somerset and beheld how the siege was carried on, he addressed himself to his followers in these words. Since these impious and detestable Saxons have disdained to keep faith with me, I, to keep faith with God, will endeavour to revenge the blood of my countrymen this day upon them. To arms, soldiers, to arms and courageously fall upon the perfidious wretches over whom we shall, with Christ assisting us, undoubtedly obtain the victory. Chapter 4 Dubricius's speech against the treacherous Saxons Arthur with his own hand kills 470 Saxons in one battle. Colgrin and Badulf are killed in the same. When he had done speaking, sent Dubricius... Archbishop of Legions, going to the top of a hill, cried out with a loud voice, "'You that have honour to profess the Christian faith, keep fixed in your minds the love which you owe to your country and fellow subjects, whose sufferings by the treachery of the pagans will be an everlasting reproach to you if you do not courageously defend them. It is your country which you fight for, and for which you should, when required, voluntarily suffer death, for that itself is a victory and the cure of the soul.' For he that shall die for his brethren, offers himself a living sacrifice to God, and has Christ for his example, who condescended to lay down his life for his brethren. If therefore, any of you shall be killed in this war, that death itself, which is suffered in so glorious a cause, shall be to him for penance and absolution of all his sins. At these words, all of them, encouraged with the benediction of the holy prelate, instantly armed themselves, and prepared to obey his orders. Also Arthur himself, having put on a coat of mail suitable to the grandeur of so powerful a king, placed a golden helmet upon his head, on which was engraven the figure of a dragon, and on his shoulders his shield called Priwen, upon which the picture of the Blessed Mary, Mother of God, was painted, in order to put him frequently in mind of her. Then girding on his Caliburn, which was an excellent sword made in the Isle of Avalon, he graced his right hand with his lance, named Ron, which was hard, broad and fit for slaughter. After this, having placed his men in order, he boldly attacked the Saxons, who were drawn out in the shape of a wedge, as their manner was. And they, notwithstanding that the Britons fought with great eagerness, made a noble defence all that day, but at length, towards sunsetting, climbed up to the next mountain, which served them for a camp. For they desired no larger extent of ground, since they confided very much in their numbers. The next morning, Arthur, with his army, went up the mountain, but lost many of his men in the ascent, by the advantage which the Saxons had in their station on the top, from whence they could pour down upon him with much greater speed than he was able to advance against them. Notwithstanding, after a very hard struggle, the Britons gained the summit of the hill, and quickly came to a close engagement with the enemy, who again gave them a warm reception, and made a very vigorous defence. In this manner was a great part of that day also spent, whereupon Arthur, provoked to see the little advantage he had yet gained, and that victory still continued in suspense, drew out his caliburn. And calling upon the name of the Blessed Virgin, rushed forward with great fury into the thickest of the enemy's ranks, of whom, such was the merit of his prayers, not one escaped alive that felt the fury of his sword. Neither did he give over the fury of the assault, until he had, with his Caliburn, alone, killed four hundred and seventy men. The Britons, seeing this, followed their leader in great multitudes, and made slaughter on all sides, so that Colgrin, and Baldulf, his brother, and many thousands more, fell before them. But Cheldric, in this imminent danger of his men, betook himself to flight. Chapter 5 The Saxons, after their leader Cheldric was killed, are all compelled by Cador to surrender. The victory being thus gained, the king commanded Cador, Duke of Cornwall, to pursue them, while he himself should hasten his march into Albania, from whence he had advice that the Scots and the Picts were besieging Alcled, in which, as we have said before, Hurl lay sick. Therefore he hastened to his assistance, for fear he might fall into the hands of the barbarians. In the meantime, the Duke of Cornwall, who had the command of ten thousand men, would not as yet pursue the Saxons in their flight, but speedily made himself master of their ships, to hinder their getting on board, and manned them with his best soldiers, who were to beat back the pagans, in case they should flee thither. After this, he hastily pursued the enemy, according to Arthur's command, and allowed no quarter to those he could overtake, so that they whose behaviour before was so cruel and insolent, Now with timorous hearts fled for shelter, sometimes to the coverts of the woods, sometimes to mountains and caves, to prolong a wretched life. At last, when none of these places could afford them a safe retreat, they entered the Isle of Thanet with their broken forces. But neither did they there get free of the Duke of Cornwall's pursuit, for he still continued slaughtering them, and gave them no respite till he had killed Cheldric and taken hostages for the surrender of the rest. Chapter 6 Arthur grants a pardon to the Scots and Picts besieged at the Lake Lomond. Having therefore settled peace here, he redirected his march to Alclad, which Arthur had relieved from the oppression of barbarians, and from thence conducted his army to Murife, where the Scots and Picts were besieged. After three several battles with the king and his nephew, they had fled as far as this province, and entering upon the Lake Lomond, sought for refuge in the islands that are upon it. This lake contains 60 islands, and receives 60 rivers into it, which empty themselves into the sea by no more than one mouth. There is also an equal number of rocks in these islands, as also of eagles' nests in those rocks, which flocked together there every year, and, by the loud and general noise which they now made, foreboded some remarkable event that should happen to the kingdom. To these islands, therefore, had the enemy fled, thinking the lake would serve them instead of a fortification, but it proved of little advantage to them, for Arthur, having got together a fleet, sailed round the rivers and besieged the enemy fifteen days together, by which they were so straitened with hunger that they died by thousands. While he was harassing them in this manner, Gwilymarius, King of Ireland, came up in a fleet with a very great army of barbarians, in order to relieve the besieged. This obliged Arthur to raise the siege, And turn his arms against the Irish, whom he slew without mercy, and compelled the rest to return back to their country. After this victory, he proceeded in his first attempt, which was to extirpate the whole race of the Scots and Picts, and treated them with an unparalleled severity. And as he allowed quarter to none, the bishops of that miserable country, with all the inferior clergy, met together, and bearing the relics of the saints and other consecrated things of the church before them, barefooted, came to implore the king's mercy for their people. As soon as they were admitted into his presence, they fell down upon their knees, and humbly besought him to have pity upon their distressed country, since the sufferings which he had already made it undergo were sufficient. Nor was there any necessity to cut off the small remainder to a man, and that he would allow them the enjoyment of a small part of the country, since they were willing to bear the yoke which he would impose upon them. The king was moved at the manner of their delivering this petition, and could not forbear expressing his clemency to them with tears, and at the request of those holy men, granted them pardon. Chapter 7. Arthur relates the wonderful nature of some ponds. This affair being concluded, Hull had the curiosity to view the situation of the lake, and wondered to find the number of rivers, islands, rocks, and eagles' nests so exactly correspond. And while he was reflecting upon it as something that appeared miraculous, Arthur came to him and told him of yet another pond in the same province, which was yet more wonderful, for not far from thence was one whose length and breadth were each twenty feet and depth five feet, but whether its square figure was natural or artificial, the wonder of it was there were four different sorts of fishes in the four several corners of it, none of which were ever found in any other part of the pond, but their own. He told him likewise of another pond in Wales, near the Severn, called by the country-people Lindigwon, into which, when the sea flows, it receives it in the manner of a gulf, but so as to swallow up the tide, and never be filled, or have its banks covered by it. But at the ebbing of the sea, it throws out the waters which it had swallowed, as high as a mountain, and at last dashes and covers the banks with them. In the meantime, if all the people of that country should stand near with their faces towards it, and happen to have their clothes sprinkled with the dashing of the waves, they would hardly, if at all, escape being swallowed up by the pond. But with their backs towards it, they need not fear being dashed, though they stood upon the very banks. Chapter 8 Arthur restores York to its ancient beauty, especially as to the churches. The king, after his general pardon granted to the Scots, went to York to celebrate the feast of Christ's Nativity, which was now at hand. On entering the city, he beheld with grief the desolation of the churches, for upon the expulsion of the holy Archbishop Sangso, and of all the clergy there, the temples which were half burnt down had no longer divine service performed in them, so much had the impious rage of the pagans prevailed. After this, in an assembly of the clergy and people, he appointed Pyramus his chaplain, metropolitan of that sea. The churches that lay level with the ground, he rebuilt, and, which was their chief ornament, saw them filled with assemblies of devout persons of both sexes. Also, the nobility that were driven out by the disturbances of the Saxons, he restored to their country. Chapter 9. Arthur honours Augustal with the sceptre of the Scots. Urian with that of Morif, and Lot with the consulship of Londonesia. There were there three brothers of royal blood, viz. Lot, Urian, and Orgusel, who, before the Saxons had prevailed, held the government of those parts. Being willing, therefore, to bestow on these, as he did on others, the rights of their ancestors, he restored to Orgusel the sovereignty over the Scots. His brother Urian he honoured with the sceptre of Morif, and Lot who in the time of Aurelius Ambrosius had married his sister, by whom he had two sons, Wargon and Mordred, he re-established in the consulship of Londonesia and the other provinces belonging to him. At length, when the whole country was reduced by him to its ancient state, he took to wife Guanhumara, descended from a noble family of Romans, who was educated under Duke Cador, and in beauty surpassed all the women of the island. Chapter 10 Arthur adds to his government Ireland, Iceland, Gothland and the Orkneys. The next summer he fitted out a fleet and made an expedition into Ireland, which he was desirous to reduce. Upon landing there he was met by King Gwilymurius before mentioned, with a vast number of men, who came with a design to fight him, but at the very beginning of the battle those naked and unarmed people were miserably routed and fled to such places as lay open to them for shelter. Guillemurius also in a short time, was taken prisoner and forced to submit, as were also all the other princes of the country after the king's example, being under great consternation at what had happened. After an entire conquest of Ireland, he made a voyage with his fleet to Iceland, which he also subdued, and now a rumour spreading over the rest of the islands that no country was able to withstand him. Doldavius, king of Gothland, And Confucius, king of the Orkneys, came voluntarily and made their submission on a promise of paying tribute. Then, as soon as winter was over, he returned back to Britain, where having established the kingdom, he resided in it for twelve years together, in peace. End of Book Nine, Part One